All right. God willing, we're going to finish up our look at the Ten Commandments and the law, uh, and then we're going to move on to the next one, talking about how Christ fulfills the law and how he um, is the reason that the law doesn't count against us. We finished up the Ten Commandments last week, and having looked at all ten of them, hopefully we realize that we've broke all ten of them and that... Uh, on our own merit, uh, we really deserve nothing from God uh, except condemnation and punishment uh, since we broke all ten of those laws. Now, uh, we're going to start there on page 14 in the sheet. Um, right after the tenth commandment, it says, What one word summarizes all ten commandments? And the answer to that is the word love. Uh, Jesus says as much when he's asked about it. Um, he says, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You probably heard those words before. Uh, and so to take all the Ten Commandments and summarize them to two, love God, love neighbor, summarize them as one thing, that's to love uh, everyone. And that's obviously something that we're not good at or perfect at, um, uh, not at all. Um, and yet, Scripture says, you see, what does the Bible say about keeping the law? Leviticus 19.2, what's that say, someone? Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy. God says, do it. And we find out we don't. Um, which leads us then to the first John passage. Uh, somebody want to read that one? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right. God says, be holy because I'm holy, and then we aren't. Uh, we don't keep any of the law, any of the Ten Commandments, and therefore John teaches us how to confess our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, truth is not in us. Uh, but if we confess our sin, if we say to God, Lord, I've broken the commandments, um, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins uh, in the person work of Jesus Christ, which is where we're hoping to go here uh, in a few minutes. Um, and even uh, in the rest of the scripture, it teaches us how Christ is the answer to our failure to keep uh, God's law. Uh, Romans 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Galatians, um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on the tree. God uh, looks at us and knows that we cannot keep his commandments. And therefore he sends Jesus to keep them for us. To be perfect in our place. To die for us. To suffer the punishment we deserve by breaking the law. Um, so that we can, hopefully, you know, you hear this in the sermon today. We can inherit all the things God promises um, because Jesus dies in our place. And um, so that's kind of a summary of what the law is there for. It shows us we're sinful so that we don't look at ourselves for salvation, but rather that we focus our eyes upon Christ uh, who suffered, bled, and died to forgive us all of our sins. Now, that doesn't mean that the law just suddenly disappears or that it's not useful to us. 
Uh, the law still is a very important thing for us as Christians. It's not like um, <coughs> since Jesus came, the law is all in the past, and it doesn't matter. Uh, Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. Um, he talks about how Jesus has come and forgiven all sins, and then he says, uh, What then shall we say? Shall we keep on sinning so that God's grace may increase? By no means. Uh, we died to sin, and therefore we ought to do what we can to keep the law, which is why you can't just, um, when your neighbor makes you mad, run him over with your car and say, ah, oh, Jesus forgives me, it's okay, <laughs> right? When you have kids, they, they help you to learn this, right? Um, if your kid hits the window with a baseball and breaks it, the first time, what do you do? You might be a little frustrated, but you can forgive them. If the next day after you get the new window in, they break the window again, and the next time, and the next time, and the next time, the fifth time they break the window, there's not quite the same grace that's there, right? Because they've shown they don't care about you saying, don't play baseball in the living room. Um, and that's the way it is with God as well. He keeps on forgiving our sins, but when we keep on breaking the law on purpose that's saying, we don't care what your word says, God. Uh, we're going to do what we want instead. And so it shows a lack of faith. Uh, the law is still there and useful for us, and there's actually three uses. Uh, as you see there, the first one's at the bottom of the page. What is the purpose of the law for us as Christians and as people living in this world? And the first one is the curb. Uh, somebody read 1 Timothy 1, 9. Anyone? It's there on the bottom of page 14. You don't have, okay. That's from last week. That's, <laughs> all right, I'll read it. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. Um, when we are confronted with the law as sinful people, it jolts us and teaches us there's something wrong. And it does that for both unbelievers and believers, right? Uh, so when you're driving your car and you hit the curb, what happens inside the car? Shakes you up a little bit, right? When you break the law, let's say, um, let's say you are speeding. That's an easy one that everybody does, right? Okay, when you're speeding, what's the law say? Yeah, here's a fine, here's a ticket to show you that you've broken the law. That's the first use of the law, that there's that thing you run into that says stop breaking the law. And hopefully it's a minor thing like speeding and it's just a fine. But if you run over your neighbor because he made you mad... The law gives you a much steeper consequence and uh, tells you that what you've done is not right. It does that for everyone across the board um, in the whole world. For example, if anyone who murders someone else, when they get caught and they go to trial, there are consequences for them. And those consequences uh, show us who we are and that there's a problem. The mirror uh, is the second use of the law. 
When we look at ourselves in the mirror, we see what things are wrong, and we try to fix them, right? Um, so, you know, you see your hair's messed up, or that, um, you know, you have a big blemish on your face, and so you comb your hair to cover it up, or, or whatever you do, right? You grow a beard to cover it up. <laughs> Just teasing. <laughs> Guys in the back both have beards here and there looking at me now. No. <laughs> you know, that's the, you look and you say, something's wrong, I need to fix it. Okay? That's what the law does also. It says, you shall not steal. And you look at yourself and say, oh, well, I, I've stolen in this way and that way. Uh, I need to do something to fix it. There needs to be a solution. And uh, we as Christians know what that solution is, and it's not covering your, your uh, blemish with hair, comb differently, it's not growing a beard, it's not using makeup, uh, or you know, putting a big bag over your head, which would be my solution. Rather, the solution for our sin is Jesus, who bleeds and dies to forgive all the sin. And so this is called the theological use of the law, where we see our sin, and we know the answer, therefore, is Christ. Uh, and this use of the law leads to repentance and faith. That third use is uh, probably the most important one, uh, and that's the guide, uh, which says, now that you are a Christian, that that's your identity, Christian, that you also seek to keep the law. You don't live your life the way you would have before you were a Christian, right? Um, it means a Christian tries not to commit adultery, Okay? A Christian tries not to steal. A Christian goes to church because they love God uh, and they rejoice at hearing God's word. Now that third use of the law, because we still have a sinful nature, is always difficult, right? How many of you wanted to get up and go to church this morning, right? I would have liked to have slept in till about 9 o'clock, right? My old sinful nature would like to do that. My Christian nature at the same time says, oh, it's good to go and hear God's word and to rejoice in his gifts. And there's that war going on uh, within us. The law still tells us what we ought to do. And our Christian nature seeks to do that to the very best of its ability. Does that make sense? That's a real brief summary of what the uses of the law are, uh, curb, mirror, and guide. And that's why it's important for us to still hear the law, even though we are Christians, uh, so that those things can happen in us uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and the law is the same across the board. You know, you shall not murder. The Holy Spirit, when we hear that word, works those three uses however we need um, so that we are led to faith that looks to Jesus and trusts in him alone. Uh, and that's what the law does. What's the only hope for us as sinful human beings then? Yeah, Jesus' forgiveness. Um, when you die and you stand before God, the only thing you can plead is Jesus. Um, you can't say, I didn't know what God's law says, and therefore I can't be held against it. Have you ever tried that when you get pulled over? <coughs> I didn't know what the speed limit was. And the police officer, of course, always says, oh, well, then you don't get a ticket, right? 
<laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> no, you still get a ticket. Or uh, you can't say, uh, I was born this way and therefore it's okay, right? I, I have an inclination to speed and therefore I can't help it. You can't give me a ticket. You still get a ticket. Um, you can't say, that law doesn't apply to me because I don't like it. Uh, or anything like that. The only thing we can say when we stand before God and he asks us about our sinful life is, Jesus died for me, and that's all I've got. And that's good, because that's all you need as well, is Jesus. That's why then we're going to move to the next section, uh, Lesson 5, uh, which is about Jesus Christ, his person, and his work. And so that's Lesson 5 which I think everybody does for sure have. Um, any questions about the law before we move there? I know we've talked about it ad nauseum here the last few weeks, but as, as someone else pointed out at the beginning of Bible study, Pastor Poppy was giving me a hard time for spending three weeks on the law, and then he spent three months on the first four verses of the Book of Romans, right? <laughs> so... It's, it's good to go in depth, and I think it's a great blessing that we can uh, study things in such depth. So I can give him a hard time back, right? Right. Okay. All right. So we talked about the only thing we have to plead before God is Jesus. And so we need to talk about who Jesus is um, and why he came. And so to do that, we have uh, lesson five here. And first, the question is, is Jesus Christ the promised Messiah? And so let's read Luke 2, if someone would read that. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, <coughs> <who is> Christ. <coughs> All right. We have that word Christ there which is a word, oftentimes I think the way we use it in the church makes it seem like Jesus' last name is Christ, right? And you even have people that, that uh, breaking the uh, second commandment say that, uh, Jesus H. Christ, or whatever it is they say, right? Christ is not a name, Christ is a title. Just like pastor is not my name, pastor is my title. Doctor is not someone's name, doctor is a title. And the word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach, or as we say in English, Messiah. And what it means is the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the fulfillment of all the anointed ones in the Old Testament. He's the one anointed to bleed and die to forgive sins. He's the one anointed to be God in the flesh. Um, meaning he's the one who's anointed to sit on the throne of David forever and ever, as promised in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Christ. And this passage in Luke tells us that clearly. It's spoken by angels, uh, which tells us this is a word directly from God, that Jesus, born in the city of David, is the anointed one. And we also have that word, the Lord, which carries with it more weight than just saying, um, He's a, a lord of a manor or a, uh, a king or something like that. The word Lord here also is the same that had been used in all the Old Testament as the name of God. In the Old Testament, when Moses stands before the burning bush, he says, who should I say sent me? And God says, 
Tell him, I am that I am sent you. And in all the rest of the Old Testament, uh, that word I am, Yahweh, gets translated as Lord because they don't want to say I am that I am or Yahweh. Instead, they say the Lord. Um, and so that word the Lord is used here as well. The baby born in Bethlehem is the anointed one and he has the Lord the God of the Old Testament, all there in that one person of Jesus. Um, let's say, uh, let's do John chapter 4 there as well, um, if you want to look at that one. Someone? The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I... I who speak to you am he. All right, this is the woman at the well who's um, been living in adultery with uh, multiple people for most of her life. And she says, I know there has been a promise from the Old Testament that there is a Messiah or an anointed one or a Christ who is coming. All those words mean the same thing. And Jesus says to her about himself, I am that Messiah that Christ, the promised one. Um, and uh, let's go also here to uh, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, I think this is a, a place where in our English Bibles we're at disadvantage uh, to those who read in the Hebrew or in the Greek that it was originally written in because all the names of people in the Bible tell you what that person is going to do. Abraham is the father of Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel and also of uh, many other peoples that lived in the world and the name Abraham means father of many peoples. Um, Adam is made out of the dirt of the earth, and God breathes life into him, and the name Adam means dirt. Um, all the people in the Old Testament, their names mean what they are or what they're going to do. Um, Isaac means laughter. Um, Jacob means kind of a thief. What's he do? He steals his brother birthright. And then his name gets changed to Israel, which means fights or struggles with the Lord. And what do the people of Israel do through the Old Testament? They fight and struggle with the Lord. The same thing is true for Jesus. Um, you'll bear a name and you shall call his name. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, uh, which in the... Um, Hebrew, the name Jesus is Joshua, uh, and Joshua means the Lord saves. Shua saves, Yah means the Lord, Yahshua, the Lord saves. Jesus' name tells us exactly who he is, the Lord that saves. Okay, so is Jesus the promised Messiah? Absolutely. And the scriptures teach that time and time and time again. Uh, and you can go through those ones that we didn't look at. They say the same thing, that Jesus is the anointed Messiah and Savior. What does the Bible teach about the person of Jesus Christ? And you see the first thing that we're going to talk about there is that Jesus Christ is one person 
with two natures. And what we're trying to say there is that Jesus is God and man at the very same time. And that is completely beyond our ability to comprehend. Um, and yet it is what the scriptures teach. Why was Jesus able to walk on water? Because he was God. Because he was God. At the same time, why did Jesus get hungry? Because he was man. Because he was man. Why is it that those two things are true at the same time? Right. It's it's something that's beyond our nature. If if Jesus is God, he shouldn't get hungry. But he does because he's also man. Um, when Jesus, and we know he's hungry, by the way. I'm not just pulling that out of air. When he goes out and is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he doesn't eat for 40 days. And the text says, after 40 days of not eating, Jesus was hungry. Uh, there's other places where Jesus is out preaching and teaching among the crowds and healing people, and all of a sudden, Jesus is tired. Why? Because he is man as well as God. And so Jesus goes off to a secluded place by himself. Um, Jesus, when you looked at him as a person, was no different than the rest of us in his outward appearance. He still got hungry and tired. He still walked around. It's not like he glowed. It's not like he had, you know, when you see the paintings, Jesus always has a halo. So you can look at him and know that he's God. That's not the case. If Jesus glowed, um, do you think Pontius Pilate would have crucified him? If, if you ran into someone that was glowing and had the ability to put him to death, would you put the glowing person to death? Probably not, right? <laughs> Jesus looked just like a man, and yet in that man, the fullness of God existed. So now to turn it the other way, um, where do you exist? On earth. On earth, right here in a body. Where did Jesus exist? On earth, in a body, and yet at the same time he was the God who exists everywhere at all times and in all places. And those two realities are true in the same person of Jesus Christ. He's God and he's man at the same time in one person. So we have that from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And I think we have to get verse 14 there uh, as well, which is actually in the man section. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. He has always existed. He has always been a part of God. And that part of God, or that God, the person of God, maybe is the way to say it, took on human flesh and became a man. 
That's the reality that is difficult to understand, and yet it is what the scriptures teach. Jesus is God. Uh, Hebrews 13.8, I think, is important in that as well. Um, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus has always been God and always will be God. The amazing thing is, is that that God became a person and was born um, and laid in a manger, as we just heard last week, right? Have you ever thought about the fact that Mary had God growing in her, in her stomach? You ever thought about the fact that when Jesus is born, he is the all-powerful, almighty God who created Mary, and yet he's placed himself into her care so that how does baby Jesus survive? Mary has to nurse him. That's the crazy thing that is all happening in Jesus. Why does Jesus have to be man? So that he can die for mankind's sin. Why does Jesus have to be God? So that he can count that defeat of sin for everybody and rise from the dead uh, so that we also can rise from the dead. All these things happen in the person of Jesus. We call this the incarnation. Um, I always ask kids, but they must not go to Taco John's or, or Taco Bell anymore. But you used to be able to get a burrito con carne, right? Have you been to a place where you can get a burrito con carne? No, it's just me? Okay. A regular burrito is what? Beans. Yeah, a tortilla with beans in it. A burrito con carne is a tortilla with beans and meat in it. Carne is meat. Um, incarnation means God became meat or flesh. That's Jesus. God con carne. Um, without the beans, <laughs> maybe he ate beans, I don't know, okay? That's, that's what incarnation means, God with meat, God with flesh, that's Jesus. Um, yeah, we, any questions on those? We, we kind of talked about some of these passages, I'm trying to keep moving here. It must have been fairly stressful for Mary to think, you know, I'm the chosen one and I have this child and I really need to care for him. Yeah, I, I think there's a certain degree of that. I think then also, we talked about the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. We've talked about how Jesus fulfills all the law. I mean, for Mary, in that regard, Jesus is the perfect child, quite literally. You know, um, God, God is not sinful like we are to our parents or like our children are to us. 
where when Mary made mistakes, it's not like Jesus said, good grief, woman, don't you know what you're doing? <laughs> right? No, he sets aside his glory and submits himself to his mother and his adoptive father, Joseph. We see that when he goes to the temple. Um, is it... Um, it's in a couple weeks, I think, when he's 12 years old, he goes to the temple with his parents, and he stays there, and they come back, and they say, where were you? And he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And then he goes back, and he submits himself to his mother and his father back uh, in Nazareth again. That's the, the crazy thing. And so in some ways, for Mary, too, it's, it's amazing to have the perfect son of God as your child. It's, it's both of those at the same time. And that's um, the gospel lesson for this morning talks about a sword piercing her own soul too. She loves her son Jesus because he is perfect. And then he, she has to watch him be crucified and killed for the sins of the world. Um, her perfect son has to go forth and preach and teach um, leaving her uh, behind as well. So, yeah. God's math is not our math either. No. He's 100% God and 100% man. But not 200%. But not 200%. Yeah, that's, that's the crazy thing. That is impossible for us to understand. Every bit of Jesus is God and every bit of Jesus is man both at the same time and inseparably so um, it's the same as the Holy Trinity three people are one God one God are three people and every way we try to talk about that throws a wrench in our normal way of thinking. You can't go to um, first grade math and say one plus one plus one equals one. You say one plus one plus one equals three. And God says that's not the way it is with me. And same thing with Jesus. You can't say one man plus one God equals two. You say one man plus one God equals one the person of Jesus. Questions or thoughts? All right. How much time do we have? Oh, good. We're actually going to move ahead today. <laughs> All right. Why did our Savior from sin have to be both man and God? We kind of talked about this a little bit already. He had to be true man that he might take our place under the law and suffer and die in our place. Can someone read Galatians, which is actually our uh, scripture passage for this morning in church? Galatians 4, somebody read that. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. All right. God sent forth his son. Um, when, how do I do this? 
when a, um, a mom monkey and a dad monkey have a, a baby, what's the baby? A monkey. When a mom horse and a dad horse have a baby, what's the baby? When God has a son, what's the son? God, <laughs> right? Um, when Mary has a son, what's the son? Man. <laughs> Both of those things are true. God sends forth his son, who therefore is God, and born of a woman, therefore is human. Both of those things are true. And I know you're thinking, well, you could do a donkey and uh, a horse, and then you end up with a mule, something different that's both. Yeah, that's the same thing, I guess you could say, with Jesus. He's God and man together into one. Uh, Hebrews 2. Anybody? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Alright. He took on our flesh and blood, um, so that he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. So that in dying, he might destroy uh, sin in our place. He might take our guilt on himself and our punishment and pay it for us. And um, if you are a big fan of uh, great English literature from the 1800s, uh, read the book A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, and you see a great picture of what Jesus has done for us uh, as well. There you go. I think there's a movie version, too, if you like it, that uh, isn't too bad um, from the BBC, maybe. So there you go. You can watch the movie and not read the book. But that's what's happening. Jesus takes our place in punishment. All right. So he's true man to take our place under the law and suffer and die in our place. Number two, he's also true God so that what he did would be sufficient to pay for the sins of all people. Uh, Romans 5. Somebody read that one. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. One man's disobedience... Many were made sinners. That one man is who? Adam, right? Um, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many would be made righteous. In one man, Adam, all sinned. In the second man, Jesus, all men are forgiven and made uh, holy and righteous in God's sight. And I know we live in 2018, so we have to say, too, the word there, man, doesn't just mean only men are saved, but it means mankind, which includes all of us, uh, men and women together. Uh, we are all made righteous in the obedience of Jesus. Um, that's just the way the Greek language works. When you use a plural for more than one that includes men and women, it's always written in the masculine form. That's just a language thing. Um... God takes our place to suffer and die. Because he's God, it counts for all of us. 
Um, and Mark says this, son of, this is Jesus' own words, Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for all of us who are in the faith. Jesus gives his life. All right. Um, number three, he accomplished all this with his perfect life, obedient death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Um, let's go ahead and read Hebrews 7, please. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sins, and exalted above the heavens. All right. Talking about what Jesus has done there, that um, he was the high priest who is holy, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted in heaven. Uh, he goes, the, the job of the high priest was to go into the holy place and to make an offering to God on behalf of all the people. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Um, he makes a sacrifice of his own body and blood, uh, and he does so not just here on earth, but also it counts uh, up in heaven, so that now God looks at us and says, your sins are forgiven by that one, Jesus, who was the perfect Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world. And that happens then, as John 19 says, on the cross. They took Jesus to be crucified. He went out bearing his cross to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And uh, in fact, at the foot of where this happened in Jerusalem, they have a little chapel called the Chapel of Adam uh, that where the, the idea is that where um, Adam sinned, Jesus' blood is poured out and covers that sin. Um, so there you go. Maybe that's, maybe that's a tangential too much, but... Um, Jesus is buried. This is 1 Corinthians 15. This is the great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians. He was buried, raised, according to the scriptures. He appeared to all these people, Cephas, then the twelve, then more to five hundred of time. And then Paul says, uh, last of all, Jesus appeared also to me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Uh, if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. But if Christ, has, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And he goes on from there and says, but in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And because he has our flesh and he has been raised from the dead, so too on the last day we will be raised from the dead. Because Jesus lives, we'll live. Because Jesus paid the price, our sins are forgiven. Because Jesus uh, is in heaven before God, so too one day will we be in heaven before God. Jesus does all that is necessary to forgive our sins and grant us eternal life uh, with God our Father. Um, and then towards the bottom there, we also have the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, that's Acts 1, and was taken out of our sight, and even then it goes on and teaches 
What we're waiting for as Christians is Christ's return when he will come back down, bring this world to its end, and take us to live bodily with him in heaven before God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever and ever without end. That's trying to move through this part a little quicker here. Questions or things that don't make sense. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Oh. <laughs> All right. As Lutherans, um, we have this summarized for us in the second article of the Creed uh, and its meaning. Uh, the Creed is written many, many years ago. We've already looked at the first article where God has made me and all creatures, given me my body, soul, eyes, ears, everything that I have. Here we hear about Jesus and what he's done. Uh, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, rose again, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God, and is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Um, we have there the meaning that's in the small catechism, um, which we make all the kids learn. Is that something you guys are interested in? Memorizing it all and reciting it in front of the church? <laughs> <laughs> Just teasing. We, we won't make you do that. Unless well, Wayne's an elder, we can. Should we make that an assignment here for the class? I think we should. <laughs> Got already. The dark, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean? It means that Jesus Christ, who is true God begotten of the Father and true man born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. That's the two persons, uh, the two natures of Christ, uh, man and God, united together into one. Uh, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me. Uh, Jesus went to the cross to suffer, bleed, and die for all of our sins so that we might have forgiveness, life, and salvation in his name. His blood paid for our sin, um, and he rose again from the dead uh, and lives and reigns in heaven so that we also will. That's uh, just as he is risen from the dead, uh, so too shall we. Uh, and therefore, we may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Um, that's what's promised to us in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. That he is our Messiah, our Savior, our, um, our blood sacrifice to forgive all sins. And everything that we believe, teach, and confess uh, should reflect that, uh, who Jesus is. And um, proclaim that, hammer that home, that point home over and over and over again, that Jesus is the way to heaven uh, and Jesus alone. Questions? All right. Look at that. See, it took us three or four weeks to get through the last lesson, and now we got through one whole lesson in one day. <laughs> I feel like an auctioneer, though. <laughs> I'm not very good at that. <laughs> Should we close with the Lord's Prayer, and then um, next week we'll keep on plugging on. Let's pray. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.